Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Defense Information Systems Agency has polished off many of the rough edges of its network consolidation effort known as DODNet. Two years after making the $11 billion contract award under the Defense Enclave Services Initiative, DISA is preparing to expand the number of DODNet users and capabilities. At the AFCA West Conference in San Diego, Federal News Network's Jason Miller got more from DISA's DODNet program manager, Carissa Landymore. We currently are supporting DPAA, DTIC, and DISA, roughly 30,000 users across both the Nippernet and Sippernet. We've been supporting them now for quite some time, but we're looking to continue to expand. We're working with the other defense agencies across the department uh, to plan for their upcoming migration. So a lot going on in FY24 um, and looking ahead in FY25 to, to wrap up those virtual discoveries, looking at the existing network infrastructure uh, for each one of those defense agencies and coming up with that migration plan. The three agencies you mentioned, you about 30,000 people are supporting. These are, you're supporting the day-to-day commonplace IT operations. What, what DODNet and, and, and the Defense Enclave Service is really trying to do is, is say to these agencies, hey, you don't have to worry about the compute, the desktops, the mobile devices. Is that the, that's really the end goal of DODNet plus the consolidation. When we think about the common IT, that's really what we're what we're focused on. Um, also, but down to the plate, right? All of the cables behind the scenes. Some of the organizations that we're supporting as well are also looking for adoption um, or are you know, management of their conference rooms as well. We're also looking to expand that into wireless. So that's what we're talking about. And anytime any of those DAFAs have an issue or need any support, we also have our global service desk, our tier one support. So those folks can put in their tickets, route it through there, and then we handle all of that backend support as well um, down to the end point, and they, they can receive support to resolve those issues uh, via that method as well. Now, I remember when the Defense Enclave Services and contract was let, there's a lot of excitement around it. Has it been kind of gaining some steam over the last year or two as you get more people interested? You mentioned uh, 2024 and beyond. What are you starting to see in terms of, of, of the education side of getting folks to say, oh, this is not only good for us, we should be more aggressive on, on using the capabilities and the services? A lot of the defense agencies are starting to see that, you know, there's a lot of benefits of going ahead and fast-tracking that deployment. Let's get in there working with DISA, get these virtual discovery contracts, the design and planning efforts underway, so we can transfer the management of these networks over to DISA. One of the things uh, we're looking at as well is something called tech debt. This is where part of those virtual discoveries, we learned that the defense agencies need some support. They need to be able to update and modernize that back and infrastructure. So we're working with the DOD CIO's office and our partners inside DISA, of course, to identify those funds so that we can help them upgrade that infrastructure and help fast-track those deployments. One of the things you also are starting to do, I think that sounds like it's new for 2024, is looking at the migrations in two buckets, the end user or endpoint. So that could be my desktop, my computer, could be any number of things. And then you're also saying the infrastructure piece. So walk me through what's new in 2024 and how that's going to help accelerate some of the changes. One of the things we're trying to do with our, our Gen 2 evolution, if you will, is really be able to posture ourselves to onboard those DAFAs faster, more seamlessly and efficiently. And really what that means is looking at 
the overall migration and seeing how we can deploy things or migrate these users in a multi-phased approach. Phase one could potentially be focusing on those endpoints. Can we look at leveraging some of the cloud tools that are out there today, such as ABD, which, you know, or virtual desktop as a service, and be able to migrate those users' endpoints first, while in parallel also working on the network migration. So that way, we can take care of their endpoints, start managing those endpoints for them, while in parallel, we can work on upgrading the cables, the stuff behind the, the wall plate there, because that's really what's going to take a bit of time to, to, to migrate, so we can help the user there as well, taking that multi-phased approach. The Don CIO, Jane Rathbun, spoke at FCOS and talked about a migration that the Navy recently did to the VDI. Is that the type of thing you're starting to see where people are going, oh, we could do this piece of it and we could do it fairly quickly? She mentioned something effective. It went from 30 or 40,000 users to over 100,000 users fairly quickly. Using that as an example, is that the type of thing you're hoping the other of the defense agencies and service, military services are, are starting to consider? That's what we're seeing, and that's what we're hoping to see as well. So we've just expanded our pilot to DISA so we can start to kick the tires with that VDI capability, work on our operational process, and our goal is to have that ready to declare IOC by the end of May and ready to uh, deploy out to the to the DAFAs. A lot of the DAFAs, uh, DLA in particular, is a big user of a VDI capability. We want to make sure we are prepped to support them and, VD, and have our VDAS capability or virtual desktop as a service ready to go. I think that there's also some opportunities from a costing perspective that we're looking into. We're, we're doing the analysis but right now, but I, we do believe that there's going to be some opportunities there. And one of the use cases that we're seeing right now at DISA is looking at our contractor users where they won't need a GFE, government-furnished equipment, and then also have their contractor laptop. Now they'll be able to use their contractor laptop, plug in a CAC reader, and then they'll be able to, to log in via VDI and be right in, you know, into DISA's DODNet network and then try to improve that experience by having one laptop and being able to use it anywhere, anytime, any device. You mentioned Generation 2 of DODNet. What's that going to mean? What's that? What are some of those new capabilities that are going to be included. You mentioned, obviously, VDI as a service is one. What are some of the other things that folks can, can expect? So more automation. We want to bring greater agility. And, and really what we mean by that is decreasing that hardware footprint that enables us to bring on more automation. So there's going to be tools out there that we, we plan to adopt and leverage other DISA services as well, such as ServiceNow, so that we can uh, bring that automation, increase our onboarding effort as well. That automation will help us do that through through ServiceNow. You'll also see us roll out other capabilities such as Ansible and Eternity that will also help us come up with uh, smoother processes and increase that automation. Enhanced security. So adaptive and sustainable threat protection, that's going to be another one which will also help us create a more simplified architecture. We talk about improved user experience with VDAS. That's obviously a big one when we talk about enhanced tools and, and streamlined processes. Um, also to help improve that traffic workflow. And then lastly, we talked about that modernized infrastructure, and, and really what we're talking about there is converging our enterprise framework so that it's uh, more central to, uh, to be able to manage this overall architecture, coming up with different dashboards that we'll be able to have up on a screen, and the team will be able to see and track the performance real time and see what's going, what's going on behind the scenes. 
you mentioned some other agencies are moving along. Uh, some of the bigger ones, DLA, DCMA, DCAA. What's the plan to get them going in 2024 and to start adopting some of these new capabilities in Gen 2? We're working with most of the organizations you just mentioned to wrap up their virtual discovery and physical discovery and move right into the design and planning. So a lot of these organizations have a lot of different buildings that have to be migrated. And so doing that virtual discovery and, and getting a, a snapshot into their existing footprint and coming up with our migration plan is where we are today. So I want to say most, if not all, uh, we'll go with most of the DAFAs have completed their virtual discovery and or, and or physical discovery and are entering into that design and planning phase into F, uh, the rest of FY24. And then looking ahead in 25, we'll start with those migrations, those cutovers to the DOD net. That will take you from about 30,000 folks using the DoD net to well over 100,000 folks, I would imagine, or something close to that. Is, is that a concern around the impact on the network? You've done, I'm sure you've done the load balancing, the user testing, make sure that it can support, you know, hundreds of thousands of users. Yeah, so that's where Gen 2 is huge because we, we look across what's to come uh, next year and the year after and the scalability, that posturing I mentioned where we're bringing in additional capabilities to be able to posture us, to be able to handle that additional workload, that's really what Gen 2 will provide us. Carissa Landymore, the DOD Net Program Manager at the Defense Information Systems Agency, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at How do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah. 
excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I 
presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is 
having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.